This is How I Got Here, a podcast where we interview professionals about how they navigated the twists and turns of their careers. We hope these conversations can help you figure out where you want to go and how you'll get there. We're your hosts. I'm Lara Mitra. And I'm Eric Eliason. In each episode, we'll first give you a quick intro about who we are speaking with, and then we'll dive into the interview. To stay up to date, follow How I Got Here on LinkedIn and subscribe to our newsletter at howigotherepodcast.com. We hope you enjoy. Omar Shaheen has had a passion for computers since the fourth grade. But growing up, he never considered going into technology. When it came to thinking about careers, Omar wanted the surest path to success and security, which based on what he knew meant he should become a doctor. He believed that all he needed to do was study hard, go to a good school, and the rest would take care of itself. Instead, Omar found himself kicked off that path. Thankfully, through his time using computers as a hobby, he was able to get a job at Microsoft, which is where he's worked for over the past 20 years. In a world where company hopping has become the default, Omar's career journey offers a great perspective on how you can craft a meaningful career and life without moving from place to place. Hey, my name is Omar Shaheen, and I'm a vice president of product management at Microsoft, and I work on a product called OneDrive and SharePoint, and I've been at Microsoft for a little over 22 years now. So we'd love to just get started, Omar, and to hear a little bit about your childhood and your growing up. You know, where, where'd you grow up? Uh, what were your hobbies? What were you passionate about? I grew up in New York City, uh, in Manhattan, in the 80s. I was born in the 70s, but I grew up as a child of the 80s. Um, it was really interesting to grow up in, in New York City. Uh, both my parents were immigrants um, from Egypt. They immigrated in the 1960s. Uh, my father was a really successful architect. And, you know, I grew up with computers uh, in the fourth grade. I got my first Apple II Plus and um, I just fell in love. Um, and ever since then, I've sort of always had a passion for computing. But it took, it, it's, I sort of had a, a windy road to get to Microsoft. Uh, it wasn't like I, I figured out that I wanted to have a career uh, doing that. Um, so it was sort of a hobby for most of my life. What were some of your hypotheses about careers that you might have wanted when you were when you were growing up yeah so i really wanted to be successful like i saw my dad <laughs> i saw my dad as someone who was a you know entrepreneur and successful and i was mm -hmm. like i want i want to have a good life i want to have a great family like my 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 father and mother created and so um for me the hypothesis was like well i'll just be a doctor that seems pretty straightforward <laughs> i will study hard I'll go to good schools and it will just happen. Um, that was sort of my hypothesis for, for actually for a long time. What made you, was there an, a, an event or a series of events that kind of kicked you off that, that path? Oh yeah. I was, I was kicked off that path for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I was not an exceptionally good student when it came to sciences. Um, you know, I was kind of middle of the road. And I made it all the way to the end of college, kind of like that. And so when I reached my senior year at Georgetown, I had taken my MCATs. I had done okay on them. I'd taken, you know, all my pre-med classes. I'd taken a whole bunch of biology classes and I didn't get into a single med school. I applied to 22 med schools and got 22 rejection letters. 
that was really, that was the end. <laughs> um, mm. I didn't know it was the end, but it was definitely the end. I wish I had realized sometime earlier, someone had pointed out to me that like, you know, you're really not passionate about this and you're really not that good at it. So why are you trying to be a doctor? That was like the first big failure of my life. In the midst of that failure, did you, how were you feeling? Could you describe that a little bit for us? And did you consider, you know, a lot of people I know, I was pre-med as well in undergrad, you know, they don't get into med school on their, their first try. It's really competitive these days. Did you consider, let me try this again? Or how did you know that, you know, I should really get off this path? Yeah, I think one of the, one of the big things for me, so I met my wife um, in, in college. Uh, we actually met our first day of college at Georgetown and we started dating a couple months later and she was pre-med, she was a biology major. It was kind of hard being in a relationship with someone who was more successful than you and in all your classes, she, you know, she's a great student. Uh, she was really good and, and I knew she'd be a good doctor and she got into med school. And I think for me, it was like, you know, she really deserves this and she worked hard for it. She was a lot better at it than me. I should do something I'm passionate about. I should do something I really love doing. And so I didn't, I didn't really think about, you know, doing like a post-grad year. And so I, I was like, okay, well, she got into med school. Maybe I'll go get a master's degree in computer science. Um, I like computer science. I, w I took a couple classes, like I think my senior year. And I was like, this is awesome. Why didn't I major in computer science? But it was too late at that point. And I was like, well, you know, getting a master's seems like a smart thing to do. And I'll give that a shot. Um, it turns out I didn't need to. But that was my next hypothesis was like, OK, I'll go get a degree in computer science. Um, it turned out you don't need a degree in computer science to get a job at a company like Microsoft. So I'm, I'm wondering, it's, it's interesting that you have this hypothesis driven mindset, maybe in hindsight, but obviously you went through all of college kind of struggling through something you weren't passionate about. You said, you know, maybe weren't the best at it being a biology major. What do you think made you stick with it for so long? It took, uh, you know, this failure of not getting into medical school to actually kick you out of it. It's, it's kind of a deep rooted part of my personality. It was certainty, the allure of certainty. Like if I work hard, those things will happen and I know I will be successful because I will earn enough money that would sort of achieve some level of success that I've defined, been defined, it's been defined because I, I observe around me that there are many people like that that have achieved a level of success and that sense of safety and like being able to just take care of myself and my family and those are things I wanted. I wanted a lot of safety. But that's because I grew up in a world where I didn't know a single person who worked in tech. All I knew were people who worked in, um, who were lawyers, who you know were businessmen, um, who were physicians, um, and so like professional services was the you know the world of New York City. There was no tech in New York City in the '80s, at least none that I ever saw. So we know that you ended up not pursuing a computer science degree. So can you share how you? came to work at Microsoft? When I was in college, I started, this is before there were blogs. Um, I started like a community website for a product that Microsoft made. Um, it was a product called Outlook Express. It was the Apple mail for Microsoft. And I started a community site because I was really passionate about this product. And there was a mailing list, like an internet mailing list back when that was a thing before we had Facebook groups and all these other things. 
And I got to know people at Microsoft. There used to be this conference uh, twice a year called Macworld. And there was, there was Macworld New York for the second time ever, I think. And so I, they actually asked, because they knew I lived in New York, they asked me if I was going to Macworld. And I was sitting around during the summer studying to get into a master's program. And I was like, sure, I'll go to, I'll go to the conference. And I went and I met a person who was like, what are you doing? And I was like, studying to get a master's. And he said, you don't need to get a master's to work in a company like Microsoft. And I was like, really? And he's like, well, would you like to come out for an internship? And I said, yes. And so I went out to California. First time in my life I've been to the Bay Area. Um, I did an internship at Microsoft. I fell in love. I got offered a job at the end of it. I called my parents. I told them like I wasn't going to be a doctor. I was going to work at Microsoft and went home for Christmas. I went to Ikea, bought all my furniture because there was no Ikea in the Bay Area. And Microsoft moved all my box <laughs> Ikea furniture <laughs> like out to San Francisco where I, where I, where I, where I live. So that's, that's how I ended up at Microsoft. And I didn't, I didn't do any of that other stuff. <laughs> it did it offer you that safety and security that you were aspiring towards or was, or did you change your, your risk appetite a little bit? You know, it really did. Like I was, I, I, I went through college, like I did a bunch of internships. They were all unpaid, you know, like, you, you know, in the world of medicine is pretty grueling. Like you have to work for a long time before you really have any financial upside. And most physicians are paying off mountains of debts. Um, so this was flipped on its head. Like I was getting paid more money than I ever imagined to do something that was really enjoyable. And I was like, you know, part of me was like, wow, this is so interesting. Um, I, I, I just had no clue. And it's only gotten more and more and more and more um, competitive even since then, because the demand for talent like far exceeds the supply. So it's, I've, yeah, like it was, it was, it didn't take very long for me to feel like I don't have to worry about the things I was worried about as a, as a kid. You know, um, I had achieved a level of like financial security that turned into what do I want to do with my life and how do I want to enjoy my time? How, what, how do I want to spend time with my family? Like the, the, the reason I sort of tell my team they, sh they should work hard and the reason I tell them they should take vacations is because like the, we have an intense environment and, and the job is, is difficult, but the company pays people quite a lot of money. And so I always try and tell people like, you should feel fulfilled, do things in your life that you value, that your money can afford the ability to do, whether it's, you know, support your community, be, be philanthropic, travel. There are lots of ways to feel that sense of fulfillment. What are some ways that you found that fulfillment outside of your, your day job? The number one thing for me is travel. Uh, my parents you know, as someone who is a like first generation American who has a lot of roots outside the US, uh, we traveled a lot as a kid. And I got to see, I got to see a lot of countries. And, you know, I also got to see, you know, Egypt is, is a third world country and there's a lot of poverty. So even growing up, I was exposed to a lot, a lot of that. And also like led a very privileged life. And so for my kids, it's been really important to like, we have opportunities to travel and see the world. And I really want them to understand the broader context, you know, in which we all live. And so we've, we probably, tr you know, we travel far more than most people that, that I know. 
that's like a big priority for my family. Um, and it's also the way that we connect to each other. Like work is such a grind for both my wife and I that it's really hard to connect at home. Um, like there's so much stuff going on. The kids have activities. My wife and I have busy personal and busy social lives. And so when we travel, that's like, that's our family time. So travel is one, photography is another. Seeing the world through like a, that lens has been really cool. I like capturing images and just kind of having those as memories and having those as sort of um, artistic expression um, has been another way that I sort of really value my time. And, and it's also something I could do without my wife and with my friends. I think it's really important. You know, my wife and I have been married for almost 20 years and so, and together for longer. And it's, it's, it's been really important for us to figure out our own stuff you know, once we had kids for like 10 years, all we did was take care of our kids. Like it was take care of our kids and survive, you know, everything else going on, but they're older now. And so um, we both have really meaningful, like, I, I like the, I don't like the world selfish, but like you kind of have to be a little selfish to just having some independent area of your life that you're investing in. I really love the way that, uh, you know, a lot of this conversation is around like work-life balance, which is just such an overplayed phrase now. And I was really reacting to the fact that you were saying, you know, you find the time when you can get away from work and normal life and go on vacation. And I'm wondering, do you, do you, is that the balance you've been able to strike? Like, did you ever try to make, you know, work, I don't know, itself, I don't know, sustainable or like, be able to give you more time or does, is that just not something that's possible given given the role or the the job you have boy it's you know i don't know if like this expression um when people say something's a grind mm. like um yeah work can be a real grind at times um and i don't say that in a negative way but i say it in a like the biggest challenge of work and i think of tech in general is there is an abundance of opportunity that is so great. It commands a lot of your mm -hmm. time and attention. Mm -hmm. Like I think about work Monday through Friday, 24 seven. It's not like they're, I'm not thinking about work, you know, on a Thursday night. And so it's really hard to be present. Um, yeah. I think a lot of people struggle to be present. It got, you know, it got quite bad during the pandemic. Cause like we were all sleeping at work basically. Um, right. So I've not found some magic that doesn't have periods of time where work is incredibly intense. Um, and so I've sort of just, I've sort of just accepted it. And I think a lot of people have accepted it um, because like, look, if you're going to, if you're going to succeed and thrive in these jobs, you have to give a lot. Um, like if you just, honestly, if you just work, nine to five and 40 hours a week, your, your career is not gonna get very far. So you really have to figure out how to be efficient, how to be smart about your like energy level, where you get your energy from, your time. And then you need to really focus on yourself when you're not working, whether it's taking care of yourself, you know, well-being, taking really good vacations and not working on the weekends, those types of things. Shifting back to your, your career path, so you turned your internship into a full-time gig, and as you mentioned, you've been at Microsoft 22 years since that, since that internship. What were those first few years like for you? What sorts of things did you get to, to work on, and how were you feeling about this role? 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking that. The first few year, years were, like I said, it was like walking into Disneyland. I was 22. I was surrounded by a bunch of pretty young people. You know, we sl- sort of lived in the office. Uh, it was a tr- it was like the dot com era, mm. 2000, 2001. Um, internet was just booming. I was working on two products, Outlook Express and Internet Explorer for the Mac. Um, Steve Jobs had just come back to Apple. Tech was pretty exciting. We worked all the time. Like we worked seven days a week. They used to bring in dinner to the office every single day. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm being, I'm being, you know, they're, they're paying for my food and feeding me. And, you know, my wife was in med school. So for me, I just like, I just worked my ass off for three, four, five years without really thinking about it. It was just a lot of fun. And I didn't think about my career. Like I just worked hard and, you know, promotions happens as, as they do, if you have a good manager. Um, so I'd say like chapter one of my career was just mm. having fun, exploring, you know, traveling, enjoying my life a bit. And, and so that's sort of how my first couple of years went. And we shipped a lot of software and that software did well. Customers liked it. We won awards, got a lot of market share. Um, Apple was a good partner. And when did, I, I like the way that you put it, your chapter one of your career there. When did, when did you have like a, a, a period when chapter two began? When was the shift? Yeah. So chapter two, I became a manager at a really young age. You know, I had no business. I really had no business being a manager uh, that young. But, you know, Microsoft back then used to make people managers that were successful. They're like, you're good at your job. So now you get, now you get to manage people. And it's like, well, those, being good at your job doesn't mean you're going to be good at, uh, <laughs> taking, at, at growing someone's career. But, you know, I transitioned to being a manager. And I started really being curious about what the company really cared about and what was strategic to the company. And like, you know, I started developing more curiosity about the more senior people in the company and like, well, what did they do to get to where they are? And I read a lot of books and started really getting just more um, career oriented, career minded, I guess. And um, I decided to make my first career change in 2006. Um, I went to go work on another team down in California, which was the Hotmail team. I realized that the future was like the web. I didn't want to work on, you know, so- software that was downloaded anymore mm. or software that came in a box. And so that was my chapter two. You know, it was Web 2.0. The web web was turning into a platform for applications, and you know, Google was pioneering that, and we we were sort of. Uh, a little bit behind. So it was a great opportunity. Like I, I always tell people, it's great to join teams when there's a disruption. And I joined right at that time. And it was an amazing and crazy couple of years of like learning how to run and operate services for hundreds of millions of people. And I'm, you know, I had a bigger team that I managed more people. I was a little more mature and I guess wise. Uh, I, I felt like I actually knew things I could teach other people. And it sounds like most of your career exploration at this point, at least was looking up, like within Microsoft, where, where's the future heading? Where can I go? Did you ever look outwards outside of Microsoft and consider, you know, roles at either one of these other big tech companies you mentioned or startups or elsewhere in the tech or other, other scene? I thought about it a lot in the Bay area. If you told someone you worked at Microsoft, they gave you a funny look. (laughs) Um, Microsoft was a small company in the Bay area and it was not in people's minds when they thought about 
tech or what was cool in tech. But the funny thing was all my friends worked at other companies. They worked at Apple, they worked at Google. They described to me what it was like working at those companies. And I would just go, wow, my job sounds pretty awesome. I sort of validated what I liked about Microsoft, what I liked about, like Microsoft had a very empowering culture, um, which is what I sort of have aspired to, to create in my team, which is they gave me a lot of responsibility and accountability when I joined um, without like any track record. And I was like, why would a company give someone like me a decision-making authority about product direction and strategy? And I was like, I don't have any credentials, you know, I'm not experienced, but it was really um, attractive to me. And I was sort of loyal. And over time, as I gained more and more responsibility and I talked to my friends at other companies, I was just like, part of your job sounds like you're, you're it sounds, it felt to me in some cases, like they were, they were a cog in a machine. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody else more senior was making the, making the decisions and calling the shots. And so I really wasn't interested because I just didn't find it appealing. I have never really seriously entertained um, a job outside Microsoft. And like, I just have worked for really great people who have always partnered with me on opportunity, like in growth areas. Um, and so that has just made it, like it's never been on the table, you know, mm-hmm. which is unusual, I think. I don't know a lot of people that have worked at the same company for, there are a lot of people at Microsoft that have, you know, but in my circle of people I grew up with, nobody's worked at the same place for as long as I have. Yeah, that's why we were in particular really excited to, to speak with you. You're the first person on the <laughs> podcast who's has one company on, on your LinkedIn. So it was, it was particularly yeah. interesting for us. I'm curious, you mentioned the imposter syndrome, and this has come up a few times during different interviews, and Eric and I have talked about it just from our personal lives too. And how do you fight the imposter syndrome on a day-to-day basis? Even today, it sounds like you you have, have it. It's actually really simple. Like Brene Brown has the answer. It's expressing vulnerability. Um, that's the number one thing. Like I have embraced my fear and I just am really transparent about it. I'm transparent about all my fears, all my worries with my team. You know, I had no idea if that was a good idea or not, but I, you know, like I, I write a monthly newsletter for my whole team and I'm pretty open about what is going on in my life, what I'm dealing with, what I'm worried about, what's been hard. I share a lot of that with people. I share, you know, things that I've regretted um, doing uh, in the, my past and that's how I've, you know, that's how I've overcome that feeling. Cause it turns out a lot of people have that feeling and you, you know, my goal is to create like psychological safety in the team. And I don't think you can do that without the most senior people like um, sharing what they're afraid of and what they're worried about and what makes them feel unsafe. I, I imagine it's, it is difficult to be, to be vulnerable though um, in the moment. And I'm wondering, you know, thinking about imposter syndrome, if we go back to where we were, where we were talking about in your career, your next step kind of in 2010, you moved to Seattle and you become part of this group that was OneDrive, formerly SkyDrive and ultimately SharePoint. I know that this was a big, a big, what has become a big part of your career today. And so I'm wondering just what is that role? What did that role look like? What did that attract you so much that you were willing to move locations for it? I have a a direct report of mine, Adam, who talks about happy accidents. So my my career, 
starting in 2009 was all happy accidents, like all, unpl <laughs> all unplanned, you know, mm. uh, things. I moved to Seattle because my wife, you know, matriculated from her mm. fellowship program at Stan Stanford. Um, and we looked for jobs. So she got a job up in Seattle and I was like, well, I'm moving to Seattle. It's great. And so that was my big, like my big career change was I finally moved into this position, group product manager, group program manager, which is like your head of the products for that little area. And we had this product called SkyDrive. And I was like, what are we doing with this product? And it turned out we're not much. Uh, Dropbox had just launched the year before. And, you know, my good friend and I were sitting around um, and we we're scratching our heads and we we're like, why don't, why aren't we doing that? Like, it seems like everybody's going to need cloud storage in the future. I mean, it's no one's going to have their hard drive and they're going to carry it around their laptop everywhere they go. They're going to need access to their stuff. So we wrote a strategy document for what is now OneDrive um, back in 2010. We basically successfully pitched it, created a team around it. It was not a well-executed strategy. You know, it took a couple of years longer than it should have to get OneDrive to the place where it should have been. And, you know, here we are today. So like that's, it's been an incredible journey, just sort of being part of creating this consumer cloud product for Microsoft. So it's been really, really, really neat. I've learned a lot along the way and, you know, it's um, had made big mistakes too. Earlier on in this conversation, you mentioned that in your in your role of a, a product manager, a program manager, you fail more often than you succeed. And you just mentioned one example and alluded to the fact that there were there were others. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about one of the failures that that you had and how you overcame it mentally, especially as someone as we've talked about, like this whole idea of imposter syndrome. So how do you get over and get over something like that and then move forward? The biggest failure I've had was not creating the right environments for the people I was working with and people I was working, you know, for. We made this decision in 2012. It was a strategic decision that I didn't agree with uh, about what to do with OneDrive. We were in the Windows organization, as I mentioned, and. When a decision is made you don't agree with and it's not safe to challenge it, it's kind of a difficult, it's a difficult like Rubik's cube because you have to decide what you're personally going to do. Do I stay even though I'm disagreeing and committing to, uh, you know, an outcome? What's my responsibility to my team? Like these are people I am friends with, people that I've hired, people I feel responsible for. Um, and what about my income and like my family and my sense of safety and all the things that like I came to Microsoft to, to, to have, right? So I, it was a really, it was a really bad couple of years. Um, and I, I mean, I survived that situation because I had close friends who worked in the team that were sort of a good support system. And I believed like long-term in the leadership, uh, leadership's ability to, get us out of that situation. But I was not an, I was a pretty nasty person during that time period. I was unhappy. Um, you know, it showed up in terms of um, like, you know, there were a lot of people that I had acrimonious relationships with. And I would say looking back on it, like I was not creating a psychologically safe environment. I was not doing the things 
they were helping people um, get through that situation. And there were a couple of individuals that like many years later, you know, I sort of reflect on, I wasn't at my best, like, and I, I really regret how I showed up to them. Um, and it's sort of, uh, that's like at that experience, it was a big experience. It wasn't my own experience. Like a lot of people were involved in this. And I think um, it was a pretty dark period for some of us. This was right before Satya Nadella became the CEO. Microsoft's culture was just in some cases, it's very different from today. Like it was not a psychologically safe. It was not an inclusive culture. Um, it was very competitive. So that was my biggest failure was just how I showed up as a, how I didn't show up as a leader, you know? Um, and I was just trying to survive. So at that point it was like, it was a survival situation. You know, in hindsight, what could I have done differently? Honestly, it sounds terrible, but I, I could have left. I could have quit. Like I could have found a different job, probably would have been for the best, but I, you know, I don't regret staying because I have the job I have today and I have the team I have today and I have the opportunities I have today. So I'm really grateful that I, you know, survived it. Um, but though the way I, the way I survived it is I set a deadline for myself. I just said, you know, if things aren't different by this date, mm. then like, I'm out and I didn't have to pull the trigger on that, but, um, that was, that was my biggest failure. I sort of think about it a lot and I try and keep it, uh, in my mind as I, you know, think about the team I have today and the type of environment, the environment I wish to have for the team. We started this interview with you telling us that when you grew up, you had this aspiration to be successful. So curious now with decades of experience behind you, how do you define what a successful career is? And do you think that you've achieved it yet? Mm. A successful career to me means you're still growing and you're still learning and you have something to offer your team. I won't claim I came up with that on my own. Like my, I think my manager actually told me that. My manager has been here, I think 30 years you know, he said the other, you know, a couple of, a couple of years ago, we had like a connect conversation. He's like, the reason I'm still here is because I want to push myself to do better and to do more and to provide growth and opportunities for, for you and for the team and for the, our customers. And the minute I feel like I can't do that anymore, I should get out of the way because there's so many key, capable people who can step in and do my job. And I was like, that is a reason to keep working. Um, there are a lot of people that keep working and don't have that drive and don't have that ambition and they take up space. Mm. Um, and at some point you need to stop taking up space because there's generations of people coming to the workplace who should have the opportunity doing a better job than you. Um, and I have no qualms that like many of my directs are more capable than me in, in different dimensions. And so I'm always thinking about like, hmm, <laughs> at what point is it more important for one of them to step into my job and do my job and for, for me to do something else? I've not reached that point yet. I still feel like I have more to offer and I'm motivated to do that. That's sort of what gives me my sense of purpose. And I'm incredibly terrified of not having that sense of purpose. So maybe I'll find something else uh, to fill it, but I haven't yet. 
you can check out more episodes and subscribe to our newsletter at howigotherepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.